My guest today is Dr. Justin A. Frank, a former clinical professor of psychiatry at the George Washington University Medical Center and a physician with more than 40 years of experience in psychoanalysis. He's the best-selling author of Bush on the Couch, Obama on the Couch, and most recently, Trump on the Couch, Inside the Mind of the President, which we'll be talking about today. Dr. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. So the first question I had, Dr. Frank, is now that you've analyzed the last three U.S. presidents, and I'm wondering, how does this sort of analysis at a distance work? Well, there's a tradition of something that's called applied psychoanalysis, which is applying psychoanalytic principles, which involves the family history, the background, various uh, uh, character traits of a person and, and patterns of behavior and studying them when you can't get the person into your consulting room. So it's a long tradition that has been done with historical figures with uh, uh, current, you know, political figures, et cetera, started really 100 years ago. <clears throat> and it's very thorough. The biggest difference is that the person is not in my office. So what I do is I study everything they've ever written, everything I can find that's written about, all the public information there is about them and their family. Then in the modern living, which is really uh, has the benefit of video and uh, uh, tweeting and all those things, I can actually uh, learn more about their behavior than I would if they were exclusively in my office because then I would never know about their outside life except what they tell me about my consultant. Right. So it's a very thorough process. Uh, each book took uh, at least a year and a half to write. Uh, a lot of thorough research, a lot of reading. Uh, I decided only to use public information because I feel that uh, everybody is much more intelligent and knowledgeable than they like to give themselves credit for being. So if they paid close attention to our politicians and close attention to what's going on, they could actually come up with a lot of ideas about their character structure. So, and that's, I really wanted to hit that first because to let listeners know that this is not just some sort of off-the-cuff psychoanalysis no. thing. This is a very intensive type of, uh, type of uh, process, oh, essentially. Oh, it's very, it's very in-depth, and it's not at all like shooting from the hip or like filling out a questionnaire about what do I think of George Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump. I mean, it's nothing like that. Right. Uh, I felt immersed in... Uh, you know, at one point when I was writing uh, the Bush book, which was my first one, it was raining here in D.C., and my wife said, it's raining. Is this still George Bush's fault? <laughs> and it's because everything, I was consumed with each person I was studying right. for the, those uh, 18 months, two years. Now, I, I know that there are a number of different uh, schools or schools of thought in analysis, and so... Can you talk a little bit about what your particular approach is? Well, my approach, first of all, maybe it's a little arrogant to say this, but I'm a Frankian, which is my name. Hmm. Um, but, uh, but basically, I've uh, really read a lot of Freud. I'm very interested in uh, Freud's ideas. And he sort of pioneered the idea of applied psychoanalysis. And then I'm influenced by uh, two people, uh, Melanie Klein and W.R. Beyond, who were uh, psychoanalysts who had slightly different ways of thinking about things, 
and they influenced me uh, quite a bit. Uh, and then I'm influenced by Jung and other other psychoanalysts, but mainly interested in how people got to be the way they are. And so the people who've informed me are really Freud, who studied defenses. He studied uh, projection, which is like the pot calling the kettle black, or the attribution of a quality to somebody else. He studied uh, very primitive psychotic defenses about delusions and uh, hallucinations. And I was very interested in those kinds of things. Plus, he studied uh, conflict between the child and the mother and the child and the father. Melanie Klein was amazing to me. She talked a lot about the importance of aggression and how it's really important to face uh, fundamental aggression, envy, destructiveness, and that if you don't face those, you can't genuinely love another person because you have to own your own aggression and uh, destructiveness. And Dr. Bion talked about thinking and the idea that a lot of people uh, attack the process of thought. They're uncomfortable with having to think, with having to face inner reality. And uh, he spent a lot of time talking about uh, those kinds of issues, which are also very important to me. Uh, so th- that's what's informed me. That may be a longer answer than you had hoped for. No, but, uh, no not at all. Not, not, not at all. I, I always like to, I always like to understand where somebody is coming from. Uh, you know, I, and I think when uh, listeners are probably expecting uh, sort of uh, why Donald Trump is uh, psychologically damaged or something, and, and certainly that's something I want to talk about. But before we get to that, you know, it, it's important to point out that Donald Trump was elected president of the United States, which is no small feat. And so no. it seems to me that clearly he must have some very significant strengths. And so I thought before we got into his weaknesses, we could talk a little bit about what you see as the sort of psychological strengths that he has that might have helped him in achieving this truly impressive goal that so few people have been able to achieve. Well, it's a, it's a very important thing. Um, about strengths, but I wanted to say one other thing about psychoanalysis. Sure. That psychoanalysis is aimed at facilitating thought and understanding. It's not used as a weapon. And, and one of the things that uh, I do a lot of couple therapy, and I would uh, working with couples, marital therapy, and uh, one of the things that I would tell people is, please, when you're attacking each other, do it in the room so we can talk about it but don't use an interpretation I make as a weapon to attack each other outside of the office. Right. Because that's not what this is about. And so when I first wrote about Bush, it was because I was scared because there was something weird about him. And a couple of my patients came in and said that he reminded them of their father. Uh, uh, both of their fathers were alcoholics, and they were always afraid that uh, when the father came home, and I said, I didn't know that Bush even was an alcoholic. And um, that got me interested. Mm-hmm. But when I wrote the book about Obama, my friends who were more liberal said they wouldn't even be interested in reading it. And I said, listen, it's about understanding Obama. It's not about attacking anybody. And uh, they were very uh, upset that I would do a book about Obama because they must see psychoanalytic research as a weapon. And it's yeah. not. I, I just want to say, I think that's a, that's a really important point because so much of the 
amateur psychoanalysis we see of Donald Trump and other folks seems to be designed exactly for that purpose. Yes, because, and, and you know, uh, people used, when I was growing up, people would use interpretations, uh, again, as weapons. You know, oh, he's so dependent, or he's so this or so that, as a way of putting him down, as opposed to trying to understand what is it about dependency? Why is that important? Why should we think about that? Whatever it is. So I, I think that it's important. As far as um, strength, you asked about Donald Trump, I mean, they're considerable. Uh, first of all, and, I, and this is in no order, really, of just different thoughts. One is that um, he understands how to fight. He understands how to argue. He understands how to stand up for himself. He fights with a kind of confidence. He understood a couple of things that he wrote about in The Art of the Deal, which was that if you're rich, people believe what you say more than if you're not rich. Right. And I think that that's true, but I also think that that shows a deep understanding of the fact that he can say things and feel that he will be believed, and he has this confidence in what he says. So that's a very important thing to understand. He had a, one of his strengths, which could be seen as a pejorative uh, thing, strength, but I'm going to say it, is that what's called he fights like a narcissistic fighter. And that means people who are narcissistic fighters don't fight about content. They fight about personality. So, for instance, Reagan was very good at that, President Reagan. So when Mondale, in the debate in 1984, made a very uh, telling point about uh, one of Reagan's policies, instead of debating the policy, Reagan just said, that's pretty good for a younger man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a put down, and it was like, you can't argue with a narcissistic fight, because he, Mondale, was fighting based on facts and policies and points, the way Hillary was fighting against Trump, or the way... Obama would fight against people, and, and uh, but, but people who are narcissistic fighters like Trump don't engage in uh, the specifics. And usually people think, well, they don't engage because they don't know or they don't get it or they're stupid. And that may be true, but I don't think that's enough. I think they don't engage because that's not how they fight. They really fight by being above it all. Like, you know, a father holding a child uh, holding them at arm's length, you know, with their hand on the child's head and the, the child's flailing, flailing away trying to hit the father and he can't get close to him. Um, it's that kind of way of fighting. And I think that's a great strength. So he would put down people. He mowed down the entire GOP opposition. Uh, that's no mean trick, uh, especially because people like George Bush and Rubio and other people, Jeb Bush rather, and Rubio, I mean, they were pretty well-respected people and pretty solid, you know, well, highly elected and, and serious uh, people. And he just mopped the floor with them. And, and it seems to me that that style just has a lot more emotional resonance with, uh, with the public. Yes, it does. Because people, first of all, policy discussions become, uh, my eyes glaze over when I start listening <laughs> to Hillary talk about policy because I don't understand it all. Unless I was, especially in a speech, I'd rather be sitting in a room with someone and talking about it. That would be different. Um, but the second strength he has is that he is able to tap into people's dissatisfaction. 
and that he understood because of his own childhood about being a victim. He's always painted himself as a victim, but and in some ways he was because he uh, his mother didn't pay much attention to him, and his father was very tyrannical at home. But he can tap into victimhood, uh, and lots of the people who have become his base are people who felt marginalized, betrayed, victims from the D.C. elite. Uh, with real serious grievances about people not keeping their promises and with people more interested in themselves and talking to each other and lining their pockets and not really paying attention to them. They they felt dismissed. And what Trump did was he didn't dismiss them and he uh, focused them. And I think that that's a great uh, strength of his. Um, I think that being a victim, unfortunately, is also a frustration because he can identify with people who are victims, but then he can uh, um, generalize it and turn America into a victim state that we're victims of uh, of foreign treaties and things. Right. So, so he can mobilize anger. So he can really uh, do that. I'm sorry. What were no, you? I was going to say, so clearly, I mean, being a strong, confident leader who can identify with people who feel uh, rightly or wrongly that they've been marginalized, that's a those are definitely or certainly can be positive things, though most of the time when I think a lot of people think about Donald Trump, they think about what they see as the psychological negatives. And there's there's, there's obviously a long list. I mean, I was going back and thinking about the ways in which I've described Donald Trump, um, mendacious, impulsive, erratic, narcissistic, you use that one already, um, vengeful crash, uncompassionate, paranoid, manipulative, a bully with a huge chip on his shoulder who hates looking weak and has a deep need to be loved. That's, that's my list. Now, now, obviously, there's a ton to look through there. And I was sort of hoping we could maybe go through some of those characteristics that I think a lot of people have not only identified, but have you know some very serious concerns with, uh, maybe starting with the thing that it seems to me to be so much different between Donald Trump and previous presidents is the fact that he doesn't just spin the truth. He seems to outright lie more than any political figure on the left or the right that I've ever seen in, in my lifetime. Well, yes, he does lie more than anyone. Uh, and I think that uh, I, I'm always a question behind you here because I wanted to say one other thing about oh, his strength, no, do, and that do. is that he appealed to people who were frustrated because they couldn't express their rage and frustration. They weren't given permission. He's a kind of a person who does uh, road rage from the Oval Office in plain sight. Right. So, so it's very affirming to people who felt that they've just learned to button their lip and not say something, you know, kick up, take off their, kick up their heels, maybe on a Friday night with a beer, but the rest of the time, you know, being good, going to work, going to church and doing the right thing. And they're frustrated and angry. And I think that he's taken a kind of a wrecking ball to most of the things in the United States. And that's a very, seen as a positive thing. Now, as far as what you were saying about lying, I have a chapter about lying in my mm-hmm. book. It's a very important concept. First of all, one lies to compensate for something else. That's the first thing. One lies 
to protect against anxiety. That's the second thing. So in other words, if you're afraid that something bad's going to happen or that you don't know anything or you have to avoid feeling shame, uh, you lie. Uh, what Trump had to do was, when he was a child, he couldn't read. He really couldn't understand either a certain kind of dyslexia, which involves processing words and processing what he hears. It's not only a problem reading, but it's a problem understanding what other people say. It's got a specific uh, technical term uh, about uh, word processing. And what happens is, that because of that, he compensated by saying to everybody else, either school was stupid, or I know everything already, or he wouldn't pay attention in class, and he became uh, very much of a disruptive student as a child. And one of the problems with that is that people who lie and who have trouble reading aren't really able to use words and thought as a way of controlling their impulse. So liars have a problem with impulse control also. The other part about lying for him is that one lies to oneself. That when you lie, you're not just lying to the rest of us. You're lying to yourself about certain qualities. You're lying to yourself, for instance, that you can't, don't know something. That's why he would always say, I have the biggest words. I know the most. I know more than the generals. I'm the least racist person you'll ever meet. I mean, he has one thing after another. And those are all things to prop himself up, to help uh, get some love and triumph over some fear of shame that he doesn't have those qualities. He also feels that he never belonged because he was really from the Bronx and not from Manhattan. So when he tried to rub uh, elbows with the elites of New York, he was always seen as a guy who didn't know that much. It was They called them in New York the bridge and tunnel club, the people who came over from Jersey or the Bronx into Manhattan and tried to use their money as an entree into society. So all of those are sources for lying. And then in his 1987 book, he justified lying by being a salesman who said that he doesn't lie. He does what's called truthful hyperbole. <laughs> use that term. And it's a great term because what you don't see when you're reading it at first, is that hyperbole means lying. It's exaggerating. It's right. lying. Right. But he calls it truthful hyperbole. So instead of saying 100,000 jobs, he'll say 500,000 jobs. But it's not really a lie because there are more jobs from what his policy is than if he didn't have the policy. But the number is greatly exaggerated. So people call those things lies, and they are. But there, this is a tendency to exaggerate, and people see this in certain, people do this with certain kinds of need to compensate. So he needs to compensate for shame, compensate for anxiety about not understanding something, and trying to make himself more powerful when he's not feeling as powerful as he should feel. You know, it, it, it reminds me of a, of a, a line from... Uh, the character George Costanza in Seinfeld, where he says to Jerry, you know, Jerry, it's not a lie if you believe it's true. And, right. And I was wondering, so you've kind of gotten at this a little bit. So do you think that the president, based on, you know, based on your, your research, do you think that he knows that he is actually just lying or does in some deeper way he feels that he's expressing a deeper truth, and that's the fundamentally more important thing. 
No, I think he knows. I think that what the George Costanza quote is brilliant because that you say because it actually is true and it's a complete lie both. Because when they say you're not lying, when he says you're not lying, if you believe it's true, that makes sense. But you're lying to yourself, and that makes you believe it's true. And that's the issue. We're talking about internal lying. So when he lies to us, he may believe it. But that's not important. That doesn't. That may make it more true than if he didn't believe it. So I, my guess is he really does suddenly when he goes from 1,000 jobs to 500,000 or when he talks about the money from the Saudis for this deal or that deal and exaggerates it. He may believe at that moment that it's true, but he's always lying to himself about who he is. And he's always lying to himself out of a fear of getting caught. As a child, he was delinquent. He would lie to his father, who was a very frightening, tyrannical man. And he would, as father said, you cannot go into Manhattan when he was like 10, 11, 12. He would sneak into Manhattan by switchblade nine and develop a knife collection. And his father found out about it, and that's when he sent him to military school because he was delinquent. So he's used to lying and getting away with things because he's trying to evade punishment and get away with things, but he's also lying uh, to himself. The other thing about Trump is that the way he thinks is what's called segmental thinking. And you see this like in babies. When a baby, and you know, if you had a child, if you remember a baby, when a baby's crying, you look at your baby, you think that that baby has never smiled in its whole life. And the baby is sure that he's never smiled. Then when the baby is smiling some other time, you can't imagine that baby ever having a crumpled up crying face because they're just happy. So every moment is segmental. It's like what you call anal, uh, digital. Uh, like those digital watches that just flip the set of the right. second hand to the minute hand. There's no arc of time. And Trump thinks in a digital way. And because of that is another reason he doesn't think he's lying, because when he says it, it's the truth. Right. And then he'll say something else, the truth, even if it was different from the previous yeah. truth. But as he says it, it's the truth. So we who think in an analog way, and now we're helped with video of previous statements of his, but when we can think about an arc of time, we can see that it's not true and that he's lying. But when he says it, he's not lying to himself or to us. He really, that's where he is at the moment. That's why when you, you know, a lot of people say, well, he only believes the last person he hears, you know, and then that's what he talks about. Well, part of that is true because that's where he is. He doesn't remember the previous thing. It's a way of thinking that usually we get over. We all have some of that now, even all of us. But we, but usually it gets uh, modified and put in perspective by the time you're maybe six or seven years old. But if not, you really think in uh, in digital time. So, like what, our, uh, so, but, so, so what happens then when he is confronted by something that's a clear? I mean, what's the psychological mechanism that allows him to process that and not say, well, I was wrong, which, you know, you would expect when you're presented with a clear you know, falsification, but he doesn't do that. No, because he dismisses it. He doesn't process any of those things because they don't get inside of it. 
He just dismisses them. He has a way. See, I think that one of the things that happens in early childhood, especially with a caregiver and with a baby and the mother usually as the primary caregiver, is that the baby, when the baby is crying, the mother understands the crying and starts saying, oh, you're hungry, or oh, you're cold, or oh, you need a diaper change. I mean, there's an interaction of interpreting an emotion. I have the feeling that his mother didn't do that very much. I have the feeling that he was blocked as a child with his feelings. They didn't go anywhere. So I think that, that he's the same way the other, you know, in reverse. He blocks what comes in. He doesn't hear certain things. So he, he can connect with people when he's in a rally, when they're on the same wavelength, when he gets people to join him. But if you say something that he doesn't agree with or usually doesn't understand, he'll just dismiss it. So when you say, well, you said this other thing, like he did this thing with Ted Cruz, he says, oh, that's a, don't worry about that. I just used to say those things, and we won, so it doesn't matter. I mean, that he really just dismisses it. Um, you can't pin him down. Uh, you would think he's like the Artful Dodger in, you know, uh, right. in uh, Dick, but he, in Oliver Twist. But he's really, it's not that. It's actually he's able, because he thinks in segments and he thinks in digital time, he's really able to dismiss something that happened before, even if he said it. And in fact, one of my, the chapter I use on language about this process in him, I have a quote where, where of W.C. Fields, the comedian who makes a, gets very angry at his caddy in a golf course, and he says, don't do what I say. Do what I say. <laughs> and that's... Um, yeah. Now, one uh, another sort of, I guess, a couple of characteristics that, uh, aside from the lying, to me, really differentiate President Trump from previous presidents is he is he seems to me to be so much more impulsive and erratic than anyone else I've ever seen in that office uh, to a to a staggering extent almost uh, what I mean would you agree with that and what would you say perhaps if you do uh, accounts for accounts for that well he is more impulsive and more erratic the erratic is I've already accounted for I think which is right. that he's inconsistent because he doesn't sense an arc of time <laughs> but the impulsiveness is because he didn't learn to read enough or to think enough, but you have to be able to think before you act. Thought is trial action, but for him, thought is actually the same as action. So when he thinks that he does it, and that's much more common in little boys than in little girls. So when little boys are five or six and they have a thought about being angry, they'll punch, they'll hit out, they'll do something, they'll discharge. Uh, muscular discharge uh, quickly, whereas girls will try to think and figure a way of talking and arguing with each other. They'll fight too, but differently. So I think that the impulse has to do with a difficulty thinking and a difficulty containing his anxiety. So the second he feels anxious or attacked, he immediately has to attack back with Twitter or whatever he does because he's not learned really to think. This is a consequence of avoiding thinking. It's a long-term consequence of lying to himself. And uh, as I write in the book, that, that searching for truth and searching for reality and facing facts is to the mind like food is to the body. 
And without that search, the psyche starves. And what's happened, we are seeing now in his 71-year-old person, or 72, that he is a person who is not able to think in broad terms. And, uh, and because of that, he's extremely impulsive. We've never had a president who is so impulsive. We have a president who's been quick, quick-witted. Kennedy was very quick with the press. Uh, Reagan was very quick. Uh, with the press. Uh, people are quick, uh, and a lot of them are very sharp, these presidents, because they're smart people, all of them, including Trump. Uh, they're quick, but Trump is much more impulsive because he also, when you don't have the art, you don't think of the consequences of what you do. Right. So when you don't think of the consequences, you can go ahead and take action. Now, the problem with Obama as president was he was so focused on the consequences that a lot of times he didn't take action. All right. Uh, another, uh, another, I guess, series of uh, a group of characteristics that I think make President Trump unique is uh, he's so incredibly, well, crass, and, uh, and then there's this bullying aspect to him that just is sort of shocking coming from a president of the United States. And so I guess this would tie into a lot of the things you've, you've, you've talked about before, right? Yes. I mean, one of the things about Trump that's also one of his strengths is that he'll walk into a room and think of what he can do to change it, as opposed to what he can do to fit in. Ah, okay. And so once you have that mentality, you're immediately thinking of what you're going to do to change it, how he changed the curtains immediately in the Oval Office, how he did all kinds of changes immediately. And so because of that, he seems crass because he doesn't pay attention to the needs of other people in the room. It's crass because he doesn't take into account that other people may be more cautious or civilized or want to have a discussion. He just says, this is what I want to do. That's it. So he sounds like a bully. Some of it is true that he is a bully, but some of it is an insensitivity to other people because uh, he does, he's never taken the shape of his container. He makes the container take the shape of Trump. And what's important about that is that the presidency of the United States is an office that functions as a container. It's got a history of 240 years. It contains its president. And so the people grow into the presidency. Trump does not, and he will not, partly because he cannot, because he's not able to take the shape of his container. To take the shape of his container, as far as he's concerned, is a sign of weakness, vulnerability, and he's just not going to do it. So he's going to just come in. That's why the term wrecking ball or, uh, you know, drain the swamp, this is about getting rid of things. I don't care about this. I don't care about the CIA. I don't care about the FBI. I'm doing it my way. And the same is true with the office of the presidency. So we've never had a president like that who some presidents can be very tough and very creative and very aggressive, but they usually are aware of the office. They're inside of something greater than them. He is not. Right. He's greater than anything. And that's an amazing quality. It's a grandiose quality, and um, it's compensatory for 
never feeling that he really did measure up, and especially to his older brother, who was this very popular, well-loved kid and who was had the father's name and everything. But those are from his childhood. But basically, he really um, doesn't see the presidency as something to fit into. Right. It's going to fit into him. You know, uh, I guess there's one other characteristic that I was hoping to get your your thoughts on, because it seems almost in a way to fly in the face a lot of this. Be, uh, but it's always struck me, and I know a number of other folks, that that at at bottom, Donald Trump also seems to have this this deep, almost pathological need to be loved. I mean, of course, all politicians probably feel that to a certain extent, but it seems to me to be greater in Donald Trump than a lot of other politicians. Uh, do, you, do you agree? I agree with that completely. And it fits with all these other things. That One of the things that happens if you feel rejected, if you have to compensate for uh, feeling dismissed by becoming grandiose, by becoming all-powerful, by breaking things down, by being grandiose, uh, one of the things that you also compensate for is feeling that you didn't have enough love so there's nobody to fit into. There's nobody around who whose arms can gather around you and hold you because his, he didn't get that from his mother. So need to be loved is so great that what he's done with that, which is, I think, extremely creative and brilliant, is that he's become his own mother. Hmm. And he loves himself the way he wished a mother would have loved him. So we can see that as a need to be loved, and it really is. And that's probably part of why he ran for presidency, because he thought, well, maybe if he became the most powerful person on earth, he could gratify that emptiness and not have this need that gnaws at him. Right. But I think that there's no way to face that, to, to ever gratify that. But he became his own mother. He lives inside of her. She's not like a separate person because he never had fights with her or engaged with her. So if you look at pictures of his mother when she was in her 50s and 60s and compared them to the pictures of Donald when he was in his 50s and 60s, their hair is exactly the same. It's unbelievable to look at their hair. I mean, uh, it's quite stunning to see. And his the uh, preoccupation with gold and bling and everything kind of a certain kind of cold elegance in all of his uh, places that he lives and in Trump Towers is really his mother's fascination with royalty, with the British royalty, with, uh, with beautiful objects. And I think that he became his mother since he couldn't really have her in an interaction, in an interactive way. I don't know if that mm -hmm. answers your question. Yeah. So he becomes a person who loves himself, but to an outsider, when we see somebody bragging about themselves over and over and over again, we think, boy, that person needs some loving. They're really trying to compensate. Right. Well, we can see it, but he doesn't see it because he's learned to love himself so much that, uh, that that's, his, that's how he functions. You know, when, when I, was, I was very surprised when Donald Trump was elected, like a lot of folks, but then I thought to myself, well, maybe there's an opportunity here because he's not a traditional uh, a politician, certainly, uh, that maybe he could actually work with Democrats on some things. Because, you know, aside from a few issues, 
it's not like he has any long-standing ideological convictions. Now, now I was clearly disappointed in that. That hasn't happened at all. And, but aside from political explanations, do you think there's any potential psychological basis for that, that not happening? Yeah, he can't work with people who are different from himself. Okay. He can only work with people who are the same. So when he talks about loyalty, he means mirroring. He means somebody like Mike Pence, who says everything that Trump says, only says it with more gullibility and almost stupidity. Uh, it's like he's he can't negotiate with Democrats because he's not interested in negotiating. He's interested in getting what he wants. So the reason he says these outlandish things like Rocket Man or Lying Ted or whatever he does to people is to get what he wants from them. It's not even an act. It's a way of... But he's not really interested in working with anybody. Because working is interaction and it's interdependence. To him, interdependence is weakness. Gotcha. Because it means you depend on somebody else. Even though you can be strong and depend on somebody else, to him, it's weakness and vulnerability. So it's just not acceptable. That's why I think any kind of deal that we've ever signed, we're being taken advantage of. Right. And, and he believes it. So, and so that would explain, for instance, why he has uh, a problem with multilateral treaties and wants to renegotiate. Exactly. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Okay. No multilateral. Any multilateral treaty is impossible. First of all, he likes one-on-one. -on -one. He can't think in a group because, again, of his segmented thinking. He can't function in a group that way. He can look at different people in these meetings that he has. But basically, uh, any treaty that's multilateral is hopeless. He's not interested. He can't do it. Yeah. And he's not going to change, not because he doesn't want to change, it's because he can't change. And I think that's what people who have been angry at Trump and disappointed, like yourself even, and had hopes that things were going to be different. It's very hard for people to accept that he can't change. And so people just complain or whine or the pundits attack him. And I'm not interested in that because he can't change. He is who he is. And so if you don't like who he is and you don't think it's a good thing, then you have to run against them and you have to do what the women are doing running for office these days and other people who are just finally saying, wait a minute, there's no way to do accommodation because he's not interested. Right. Now, because you've written books, not just on Donald Trump, but also on, uh, uh, on uh, President, President Obama and Bush, I, I'd really like to hear what you, how, how you would sort of compare them in terms of what you see as maybe as their greatest psychological strength and weakness to kind of bring in a little historical perspective on this, if, if, if you could? Well, I think it's a great question, but I think that I would like to frame it slightly different, not okay. just strengths and weaknesses, but psychological characteristics. All right. For instance, because I think the strength, usually a person's strength is very similar to their weakness. Right. Uh, from looking at from another side. So for instance, George Bush's strength was that he could be decisive and say, you're with us or against us. His strength was, you know, you're with us or you're with the enemy. His strength was that he could, he was very much uh, trying to keep people together, uh, 
although he ended up being divisive, he really didn't see himself that way. But the strength was that either-or thinking in an absolute sense. But the weakness is either-or thinking, because then you can't see complexity, you can't see nuance. So his strength was his weakness. Hmm. For Obama, his strength is also his weakness. His strength is perspicacity. His strength is being able to see all kinds of things in a room and really notice different things and realize that people are coming from different places. So he can say things like, American exceptionalism is great, but to the British, they're exceptionalists for their country, and the Greeks are exceptionalists for their country. So people who think in terms of either or, there can only be one great country, America, they see Obama as being weak. And because he would see other people, he could see things from other people's point of view. So his strength was being able to see things from other people's point of view, but his weakness was that he didn't have enough of the either-or thing in his personality. And that meant that he couldn't see hate and destructiveness in other people. Mm. So he couldn't see that Mitch McConnell hated him. It wasn't just that Mitch McConnell disagreed with him. Right. He couldn't, he didn't understand that. And that was his biggest weakness. So I even, it's the only time I've made a diagnosis in any of the three books, because uh, it's usually my diagnosis is George Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, that's it, because they have so many characteristics. But for Obama, I made up a new one, which was he suffers from obsessional bipartisan disorder. <laughs> and, he, and he can't get past that. And the reason he has obsessional bipartisan disorder is that he's mixed race, half black, half white, and he's trying to unite himself inside. And then his parents come from not just are they black and white, and not just were they divorced and separate, from a very early age, when he was two, they also came from totally different cultures, one from the Midwest and one from Kenya. Right. And so he had to bring these things together. And his mother helped him actually a lot when he was a child, but he had to bring these things together. So he valued bringing things together. He valued complexity, but that made him seem weak to other people. So he was like a both and president who was leading an either or right. nation. Right, because you're either with us or against us. The difference with Trump is that his strength, he's different from Bush, and it's similar in terms of black and white thinking, either or, but the difference is that Trump has to set people against each other within our country in order to have power. Bush could set us against the world in order to have power, whereas, so he would uni try to unite us this way, uh, not that's not all he did, but that was one of his main things. So it was about all of us against Islam or whatever. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Trump, it's Democrats versus Republicans. He's trying to divide people as a way of making power and making sure that he can get rid of his own inner deep uh, divisions in his own personality. So he just puts them out there. I know we're running a little short on time, but I have just one final question for you. I, I'm sure you know and listeners know that there are some people, almost exclusively on the left, who say that uh, Donald Trump is basically so psychologically, well, damaged is a term they would use, that uh, he is unfit to be president, that the 25th Amendment should be you know, invoked, he should be removed from office. What do you think about that? 
Well, that's tough. I actually think he is unfit to be president. And the reason he's unfit to be president is that he does have trouble thinking, that he is reactive and impulsive, that he is not really interested in learning. He doesn't have any interest in understanding government because he thinks he knows it all. And the reason he thinks that he knows it all is from childhood and refusing to acknowledge that he doesn't know something. So he couldn't ever say he can't read or he doesn't understand something. Please explain it. He could never do that. So uh, that's not presidential. You need a president who can understand those things and who is curious and wants to learn. The other reason he's unfit is that he's unable to do a fundamental function that is presidential. Because he can't grow into the presidency, but wants to sort of cannibalize the presidency and make it his own, he's unable to help us, Americans, you and me, manage our own anxiety. Presidents, usually all of them, even Nixon, who was very troubled at times, try to calm people down, try to help people be less anxious. They're really focused on trying to make people less afraid or less uh, uncertain. Uh, I mean, Roosevelt was the best at that, but a lot of them did that. Trump cannot do that because he never learned how to be calmed by anybody else. So he sees no value in it. And the only thing that calms him down is to tweet, to attack, to be impulsive, to lie. And that's not a good thing for a president. So he can't actually make things better, in a sense. He's occasionally able to say to the very rich people, well, I just made you guys a lot of money when he did the tax cut. That's true. But that's, you know, one rich guy talking to another. So I think those are all reasons uh, that he, and he's not able to feel compassion because of those things. And I think that it's important. You have to be tough and you have to go to war and things sometimes. But you also have to feel compassion for other people. And he just doesn't. He even says about this uh, journalist who was just murdered. He said, well, it was a very sloppy cover-up. It was the worst cover-up ever. And, but never a statement about the person who was killed um, or any of those things. So that's why he's unfit. As far as the 25th Amendment goes, he's unfit, but he's not incompetent. In right. other words, there, I would not think of exercising the 25th Amendment. Right. I think he can't do the job, but we elected him. And we elected somebody who can't do the job. And there's reasons, I mean, we can't go in time to go into that, why people elected him, why 60 million people voted for him. There's a lot of reasons. And some of them are pretty important and valid. So I don't think he could be removed. He could be impeached. If he really did collusion and really was uh, in bed with the Russians enough that it affected his functioning as president, because then he'd be more of a traitor mm-hmm. and uh, and would be impeachable. But as far as unfit, it's weird to say he's unfit, and yet I don't think the 25th Amendment will do it. No, I, I, I totally understand what you mean there. Um Well, uh, on that note, we will close. Uh, Dr. Justin Frank, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. This is great.